Good morning, everyone. Um, appreciate Russ mentioning the summer memory challenge. Uh, Roger was always so good at encouraging us each summer to commit some time to memorizing Scripture. I have not done a good job of encouraging the same. And uh, last year we looked at Isaiah 40. Probably I was a bit ambitious, okay? I personally enjoyed the experience, but uh, all seven of us, as Russ had said. Um, so I did things a little differently this year. We got a smaller section, and they're familiar verses. Some of you may have already memorized uh, the passage that I gave us this summer. But I would encourage you to take the time as you either remind yourself or commit for the first time these words of truth to really think about what each of those words mean and why they matter. Um, you'll see in the passage that there's a lot of adjectives being described and listed there. And so just pause as you're putting those to mind. What does each of them mean? Why does it matter how does this impact my life? And I hope, since it's in the study that we will be going through together this summer, that when we get to that section, it'll just be all the more meaningful having spent some time there already. So I hope you'll take the time to do that. Now, this morning, I want to talk about uh, telling your story. I believe there's something that is powerful that takes place when people are willing to tell their story been a part of several men's groups through the years, and historically, I've always tried to begin men's groups with a chance for each person, Michael Park, you'll remember this, uh, asking each one of those men to share their life story. Now, sometimes people will have had history together, other times they may not have known each other very well, but inevitably, in every situation, there is a deeper connection that takes place when people take the time to share their story. There's something that happens when others are willing to open up their life. Now, it's definitely scary. It certainly feels risky, but there is great reward in being vulnerable with one another. I think we see that reality every summer when we do the women's brown bag lunch and women tell their story. There is a connection and an affection that is stirred by people willing to step out in faith and do that. I see the same thing on Sunday mornings when somebody stands up here in my place and tells their story. I've always said, I believe it's true, that those testimonies have much more of a powerful impact on a Sunday morning than anything I have to say. Because they're real life stories of what God is doing in and through them, and we just don't leave those things unchanged. One of my favorite experiences as an elder is the opportunity to sit down with people who are going through the membership process. Because part of that process is the chance to hear their story. To hear about how they have come to faith in Christ. And without exception, through hearing those stories, it not only deepens my affection for that person, but it enlarges my view of God. It helps me see how big, how wonderful, how gracious, how merciful He is as He works in the lives of all these people. There's something powerful that takes place when you tell your story. Let me give you an example of recent uh, months. I had the privilege uh, to sit down and visit with my high school English teacher, Sharon Kingston. So Sharon started to come to church here at Melanie Park uh, again a few uh, months ago. 
And we've always had a good relationship as far as a teacher and a, a former student. We had a, a mutual respect, a friendly acquaintance with one another. But at, that completely changed the day I heard her story. Because there were things that I was able to hear about her life that her, she was willing and gracious enough to share with me that forever changed the way we relate to each other. We're not a friendly acquaintance anymore. We are sincere friends. Miss Kingston is not just my high school English teacher. She's somebody I care very deeply about. Now, <laughs> I'll admit I still worry about my fragmented sentences and bad grammar on Sunday mornings, <laughs> right? But I don't lose sleep over it. In fact, I want you to know that my day is a little bit brighter when I see her sweet face on Sunday morning. And I really believe that was all made possible because she was willing to share her story. There's something powerful that takes place when people share their story. I think that's why we see what we do in our passage this morning. Because as we will soon find out, Paul is going to share his story. He's going to share his story of, of God's grace in his life. He's not telling it to, to somehow prove his worth or even establish his authority. He's telling his story so that they can understand the evidence of God's grace in his life. And his sincere desire in telling this story is the hope that those he is speaking to might experience the same grace of God in their life as well. He wants them to be set free from the bondage of deception and be liberated by the truth of God's grace. And he does that by telling a story. So before we look at that together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we open up your word, we need to be reminded this is ultimately <laughs> your story. Your story of your love for us. Your grace and mercy being extended to us. The invitation to enter into that love and grace and mercy through faith in your Son whom you've revealed to us. God, this is your story. And you are inviting us in to that story. To experience the fullness of everything you created us for. To live in that life-giving relationship with you through faith in your Son. Father, as we open up your word this morning and we hear Paul's story, may it remind us of your story and the invitation that we've been given to enter into that story. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this privilege of our time together. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 1. And let's begin reading together where we left off last in verse 11. So Galatians chapter 1 verse 11. Paul writing says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. All Paul is really doing here is repeating what he's already said earlier in his letter. He's telling them that the gospel that he's preaching was not his idea to begin with. Nor was it something he learned in all his religious education. And trust me, he had plenty of that to speak from. But he says, no, this was a revelation received 
from Christ Himself. It's not man's good news about God. It's God's good news for man. It's not something He came up with on His own. It was delivered to Him by Christ Himself. Look at how He continues in verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. Here's where He begins to tell His story. I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. That was his goal. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. This is where Paul rewinds the tape a little bit and begins to tell his story about his life before Christ. A story of personal pursuit that stands in stark contrast to his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. A time, as he says, when he was trying to destroy the church, not build the church. He was on a mission back then. It just wasn't a mission from God. It was a mission based on selfish ambition. We see that because of what he says in verse 14. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries. You see, his success was based on his performance in comparison with other people. He was not really all that concerned about doing what was right in the eyes of God. He just wanted to stay one step ahead of those around him. He was advancing beyond his contemporaries. Because notice the focus of his passion there in verse 14 at the end. Being more extremely zealous for my ancestral Tradition. So his zeal was not necessarily grounded in God's word. It was based on these ancestral traditions. And it's important for us to understand what Paul is saying here because this is not some mystic belief system. In fact, what Paul is referring to here in this passage is still very prevalent in the church today. Let me explain it this way. If you'll think back to the Gospels, when Jesus was beginning in his ministry and he was teaching publicly, many times it says that the, the crowds that were in attendance were amazed. Remember that? Remember why they were amazed? They were amazed because he spoke with such authority. You ever stop to think about what does that mean? Why were they amazed that he spoke with authority? Well, the reason that's true is because when the rabbi would typically teach in the synagogue, he would read a passage of Scripture, and then his message was based on rabbinical commentaries. His authority was based on his ability to recall the historical interpretations of these rabbinical schools. Those rabbinical commentaries were called the Talmud. And the Talmud was like an oral tradition of the law that was given equal weight with the law itself. So a rabbi established his authority by his understanding of these historical interpretations of the word. But that's not what Jesus did. He did not quote the rabbis, which automatically caught their attention. Instead, he spoke of the Bible and interpreted it himself. He let Scripture interpret Scripture. And the reason people were amazed is because here was this untrained man who knew more about what the Bible had to say than anyone else they'd heard of. They were amazed because he taught with authority. 
That authority was his ability to interpret Scripture based on what Scripture had to say, not the oral tradition. You see, Paul says that he was advancing beyond many of his contemporaries. And what he's saying there is he was becoming a very notable scholar in that religious system. But his authority was gained not because he was a humble student of God's word. He was zealous for his ancestral traditions. What that means is that Paul was an expert in what other people had to say. And what was true back then is still very true today. Look at how it continues in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, that I might preach among the Gentiles. He says, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. I, I think when we look at these few verses here, we're getting to the heart of Paul's story. Because despite his passionate pursuit of selfish ambition, he was saved by God's grace. And I think he highlights in these few verses three very important aspects of how God's grace intervened in his life. First, he says, he was set apart in his mother's womb. That unborn child. Don't miss that. That unborn child had value and purpose in the eyes of God. That unborn child was set apart. The grace is the fact that God knew his life story from beginning to end before the day he was born. And despite all the terrible things that he knew Paul would do, he intervened in his life. He would not let Paul's sin become a barrier to his love. He was set apart. We see God's grace in what I'll call his divine intention. Being set apart, even knowing all that he would do to enter into his life with intention and initiation. It says that he literally stood in his path, and when he did, he said that, it was God's decision to reveal His Son to me. Look at that again in verse 15. Even from my mother's womb, He called me through His grace and was pleased to reveal His Son to me. That's God's decision. God took the initiative. God moved first. Salvation is never something that we earn, something that we work up to. It's a gift that we receive. Despite the fact that Paul was rebelling against God, God was still pursuing Paul. That's grace. He, he literally stood in his path. He invited him to trust. Salvation is only possible when we see these evidences of God's grace with his divine intention, his divine initiation, and ultimately his divine invitation. And what we see in the life of Paul is equally true for us. Because even before you were born, knowing all that you would do, God had a great affection for you. 
That's grace. Because I don't know about you, but I would not love me knowing all that I would do. And yet, before the day you were born, knowing all that you would do, God had a great affection for you. He would not allow your sin to become a barrier to His grace. As the Bible tells us, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The message of Christ is a divine interruption to our life of selfish ambition. It was His desire for your life before you were born. In the same way that God invited Paul, He also invites you and I. In fact, based on what we've been talking about this morning, I can safely say that there is no one in this room who can ever claim that they've never had a chance to believe. That day is over because that day has come. There has never been a day that you can ever say that God hasn't reached out to you because He just did. No matter where you have been, God desires for you to experience something better. That was His desire for your life before your life began. Knowing your story and how it would be marred by sin, He willfully entered in and invited you to trust in Him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is a story of God's grace. And what is true for Paul is equally true for us. That divine intention, being set apart in our mother's womb, knowing all that we would encounter and yet still being willing to enter in. Not letting our sin become a barrier to His grace. That divine initiation. He didn't wait for us to make the first move. He moved first. He interrupted our life. And ultimately, He invited us to trust. The Bible says that He didn't want any to perish but all to come to repentance. And that word repentance simply means a willingness to turn from my way where I'm in control and trust in Him and His control. Trusting in God's will for my life as being better than my best possible option for myself. Repentance is the decision to trust in Him more than I trust in me. Ultimately, that's what it means. And we've been invited into the relationship with God through faith in Christ based on that trust. See, Paul was not rescued because he was on the right path. We know just the opposite, right? He was opposing God. God wasn't impressed with all his religious accomplishments. Paul was saved by grace through faith, through Christ alone. And so are you and I. And the very same work of God in the life of Paul has been extended to you. Look at how he continues in verse 18. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas or Peter and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. The word then is a marker of time. You can see it here in this verse, then again in verse 18, then again in verse 21, and then uh, finally in chapter 2, verse 1. I think what Paul is doing here is he's marking important seasons in his life that contribute to his story of grace. We've already learned about his salvation not being something of his own pursuit, but 
God's interruption and invitation to trust in him more than he trusts himself. Apparently, Paul got the message because even after believing, instead of going and consulting with other people, instead of entering back into that world of training and education, he went to be alone. Alone with God in study and prayer. It says, then, after three years, that's a long period of time, right? After three years, he finally went up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. It says that he, the purpose was to become acquainted with Peter. He was there for a relatively short period of time, 15 days, so barely two weeks. So he wasn't there for any extensive training uh, process. He was there to become a partner in ministry with an important apostle in the early church, Peter. If you'll remember in Acts chapter 9, when Paul originally made this trip to Jerusalem, he was not immediately accepted, right? Chapter 9, 26 says that the apostles and all the disciples were afraid of him, that they did not believe that he was sincere in his faith and profession of trusting in Christ. Until what? Until Barnabas stepped in. Barnabas, the encourager, which I think in large part means he's willing to listen to the story. And he did. He listened to Paul's story. He was convinced of God's work in his life. And so he encouraged the other apostles to listen to that story as well. And so I believe that's why he had an audience with Peter. It was because of Barnabas. So he and Peter sat down, and here's what I believe they did. I believe they shared their stories. I believe they shared the story of God's grace in their life. You see, Peter was not on a path of sharing the gospel beyond his circle of friends until God interrupted and told him to go into the house of Cornelius. And Paul was not on a path to share the gospel with anyone. He was on a mission to destroy it until God interrupted his life. So I believe they sat down and shared their stories of grace. I bet they were particularly interested in the individual conversations they had with the risen Christ. Because according to Paul, it was he and Peter and James who were the only ones who met individually with the risen Christ. In fact, I'll take you there. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is where Paul recounts those events. And I want you to listen to how he describes it, beginning in verse 3. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. There He, he appeared to Peter individually, and then to the twelve as a group. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of them who uh, remain until today, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James individually, and then to the apostles collectively. And last of all, as if it were of one untimely born, he appeared to me also. In the end, the point that I think Paul is trying to make here is that he did not go to have this conversation with Peter to be trained in the message of the gospel. He went with the message of the gospel to affirm that he and Peter were, in fact, partners in ministry. 
It was a message that Paul continued to preach no matter where he went. We see that in the following verses in our passage. It says in verse 20, Now, in what I'm saying to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. I think it's interesting here that Paul says that he was unknown by sight, but well known by reputation. That doesn't mean that no one knew what Paul looked like. Very likely they did. He was very prominent within the Jewish culture. Instead, I think what it meant was that he was not on a campaign trail. He was not making public appearances in order to promote himself and his ministry. Instead, his goal was to glorify God by sharing his story of grace, which is why the Christians in Judea were praising God. They were rejoicing. Why? Because he who had once persecuted the church was now the one who was proclaiming the truth of Christ he had once rejected. Instead of persecuting the church, he is building up the church. He is planting the church. Paul has had a transformation And those stories of transformation are ultimately what strengthens the church and enlarges our view of God. It was true back in the early church. It's equally as true today. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Then, another marker of time, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I, did not, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. When I looked at this passage, I've always kind of considered it to be a reflection of the events in Acts chapter 15. You'll remember when we went to that and the Jerusalem council got together, they were discussing this issue of uh, importance in church at Antioch with circumcision required to believe and be saved in Christ, and so they'd come back to Jerusalem. But the more I've looked at this as I've prepared for This morning, I don't think it was Acts 15 that he's referring to here. There's a couple of reasons why, and they're both in verse 2. The reason is because it says Paul Paul first came to Jerusalem, it says, because of a revelation. If you go back to Acts chapter 15, we know that they were sent by the church in Antioch, right? The other thing it says is that the discussion began with a public debate in Acts chapter 15, but here in chapter 2 it says it was a private conversation. So instead of Acts chapter 15, I think what Paul is referring to specifically is the encounter that he had in Acts chapter 11. So let me remind you of that. Go back to Acts chapter 11, and let's look at that together. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. And I'll explain why I think this little detail is important. Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Paul, recounting these events, says, Now at this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, 
stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this did, in fact, take place in the reign of Claudius. And in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul, who we know as Paul, to the elders. So I think very likely this is the revelation and the commissioning to go and take this offering to the church in Jerusalem. And this is very likely the encounter that Paul is talking about here in Galatians chapter 2. The reason I think this little detail is important is because it tells us how early on this issue, this threat of faith in Christ alone existed in the early church. Acts chapter 15 is where they finally drew a line in the sand, so to speak. But this is not the first time the issue came up. They've been dealing with false teaching from the very beginning. Paul describes them in verse 4 of our passage there in chapter 2 as false brethren who sneaked in to spy out our liberty. As a spy, as we know, is a person pretending to be someone that they're really not. So these are people claiming to be Christian, but they have ulterior motives. These are people who are trying to lead others away from the freedom that is found in God's grace. Apparently, what is happening centers around Titus. We see that from our passage. We learn that Titus is a Greek, and Paul says, who was not compelled to be circumcised. But there are voices in the shadows who are suggesting that he's really not a Christian unless he does. There are things that Titus must do to add to what Christ has already done. But Paul says, we wouldn't yield, not even for an hour, so that the gospel might remain with you. Who's the you? It's the people he's writing to, right? The Galatian church, which is, by the way, filled with Gentiles, with Greeks, just like Titus. The reason this is important, because the impact of this decision is about to affect an entire population of people, the entire Galatian church. And so Paul is explaining the importance of what they were able to do to ensure that that message of faith in Christ plus something no longer continues. Look at how he continues in verse 6. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of high reputation contributed nothing to me. And I want to pause here because when you first read this, you think, gosh, Paul's kind of taking shots a little bit. Sounds like it. But I don't think that's what's happening at all. Those of high reputation are people like Peter and James and John, early leaders in the early church. And Paul obviously has respect for them because we learned earlier in our passage about the special trip that he made to become acquainted with Peter. And Paul believed these leaders were to be honored, just not exalted, because he knew as well as anybody, they're sinners saved by grace, just like me. So look at it again, verse 6. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. We've all been saved by grace. They were of no... Uh, were of reputation, contributed nothing to me. What he meant there was they didn't contribute anything to the gospel that had been revealed to him by Christ. In fact, as we learned earlier, they only confirmed that that's the message that they've been preaching as well. So they contributed nothing because, meaning they added nothing to the gospel like these false teachers are trying to do. You see the point? 
Look at it continues in verse 7. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he was effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, did the same in me to the Gentiles. In recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor. That's the point that we looked at in verse 11, the very thing we were eager to do. See, Paul is affirming that there is one gospel that is to be shared with a multitude of nations. Paul and the church leaders were on the same page. That was confirmed in these conversations. There might have been a diversity in their mission, but there was unity in their message. Peter went to the Jews primarily, not exclusively, but that was his target audience. Paul went to the Gentiles primarily, not exclusively, but that was his target audience. But both men were proclaiming the very same gospel. They stood in solidarity against those who tried to distort the divine revelation. They were adding something. And Paul and Peter and James and John drew the line and said, no, faith alone and Christ alone plus nothing. This is not man's good news about God. This is God's good news for man. It's a message of truth revealed through Christ, proclaimed in unity by his people. There is one gospel and one name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved, and it's Jesus Christ. It's a message of freedom in Christ that is filled with hope. And let me ask you a question. How do people know that's true? How do people know that the gospel is a message filled with hope? Well, hopefully from what we've been talking about, you know the answer to that question. They know that truth because of the story that you're willing to tell. Something powerful takes place when people are willing to tell their story. Sharing our story strengthens our faith. It enlarges our view of God and His work in this world. It builds unity in the church. It removes any idea of different classes of Christians so that we start categorizing people based on race or, or gender or social status. The Bible puts all that to rest and says, no, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. But it goes even further than that. It prevents us, when we really understand the gospel of grace, from categorizing people based on struggles of sin in their life, struggles of difficulties or habits or hang-ups. I think it's easy for us to look at people who struggle with things like pride and lust, and kind of give them a pass because in our mind we're thinking, good grief, who doesn't struggle with that, right? Oh, but if it's depression, suicidal thoughts, same-sex attraction, that's a whole different category of sin. Is it really? Does it require a different level of God's grace? Is it somehow outside the boundary of God's love? Is that what the gospel tells us? 
Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll end with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, and if you would, begin reading with me in verse 9. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor feminine, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the key, verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the Spirit of our God. That's a humbling verse. I don't know about you, but when I read that, it is a humbling verse because it reminds us that we are all sinners saved by grace. It reminds us that we have been rescued from sin. Such were some of you. I think that's why Paul will later say in his letter to the Galatians, it says, when your brother sins, you who is spiritual, restore him in gentleness. For such were some of you. We don't tell our story because we no longer struggle with sin. We tell our story as a reminder that we have been rescued from slavery to sin. Romans chapter 6 is very clear. It says you know that sin is no longer your master, for you are now ruled by grace. We need to be reminded of the freedom that only Christ can bring. And here's the good news in that. As we sit here in this room, we can say with conviction that there is no one here who is terminally unique, meaning that there's nothing that anyone is experiencing that no one else in this room can possibly ever relate to. That is absolutely not true. Your story may be different, but your Savior is exactly the same one that we must all rely on. We all need Jesus. We all need recovery in Christ. We all need to be set free from the bondage of deception, the lies of the enemy, to be liberated by the truth of God and the power of His grace. That's what we all need. So let me encourage you this week. Take some time to share your story. And not just your story of what you used to be that you're not anymore. I mean, talk about what you've been rescued from but include what you continue to be redeemed by. The work of God in your life right now in places that you may still struggle, that you're working through and trusting Him in, because we need to be reminded, such were some of you. And being a Christian doesn't mean that you no longer struggle with sin. It simply means you are no longer a slave to sin and that you are ruled by grace, and we are learning to live in that grace together, which is why we tell our story so that we can be encouraged to allow the redeeming work of God's grace to continue in our moment every single day until the day he calls us home. Because that's the only time you'll be made complete. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And that's the day he's talking about. 
the day he returns. Until then, we're a work in progress, right? The grace of God is still being manifested in our lives to make us more like Christ. So tell your story and include the reality of where God is still at work. Because stories of transformation ultimately bring praise to God. Because it helps us see where he's still at work in the lives of his people, accomplishing his purposes that he had in mind before the day you were born. That's incredible news. Amen? Let's stand together and sing as we close this morning. And if you know Christ, it is filled with grace and goodness and truth that transforms you and those around you. And so just let me encourage you to share your story and uh, have courage. Sharon, thank you for sharing your story with me. Let's continue to do the same. As I close this morning, I just received news that James Shanklin fell, fractured his skull, and has some swelling. And so let's, as a church family, be praying for the sweet Shanklin family and ask the Lord to restore him. Let's do that together, Lord. We come to you this morning praying for a family we love dearly. Uh, They are a part of our story. And so we pray specifically for James this morning. Would you, in your loving and gracious way, bring comfort to that family, bring restoration to his young body. Lord, whatever swelling may exist, we pray that in this moment that it may be reduced, that it would be eliminated, and that he would be restored to good health. Father, by your grace and mercy, would you bring healing to that family and would you bring hope to their heart as they put their trust in you. As a church family, we pray this now before a loving and gracious God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.